Oh, I'm on? Yeah, great. Well, morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Caleb, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Gateway. Uh, it's good to be here today, isn't it? It is good to worship. Uh, thanks, guys, for leading us in that. Um, great. I think I'm about ready here. Good stuff. Um, so, a few years ago, uh, I was in a conversation with, uh, with a guy I'd got to know fairly well, who... Um, who had, for a number of years, been a part of uh, a, a, a congregation that at the time, a church that was, a, a really, it was really high profile. Um, it was kind of heralded as a new thing that might transform the way we do church in the future. Super cool, loads of good stuff happening. And, uh, and this friend uh, had been very much a part of it, been committed, going along for a long time. Uh, and then, seemingly out of nowhere, accusations were made against uh, some of the key leaders in this church. Um, it shall remain nameless, but you might be able to put two and two together, those of you who know recent church history. Um, and this church essentially just came crashing down. The whole thing got closed down. There were some really, really unhealthy things right at the core of that church going on in the background, particularly with the leadership. Lots of accusations made. And, um, and it was incredibly painful. The whole thing just got completely... Um, shut down. Uh, now, this, um, like, it, 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 and when I talk about bad, this was like about as bad as it gets, to be honest. Like, how on earth did that happen at the heart of a church? Um, but this friend of mine, when you speak to him, if you were to ask him, uh, what were, when, when did God meet you the most? When did God do the most kind of powerful work in your life? When did you sense his presence most? He would still say today, that if you were to ask him for his top 10 moments of like God transforming him or him meeting with God or whatever that might be, he would say that they were all at that church. And um, isn't that incredibly frustrating? Like, do you find that frustrating? I find that frustrating, that, that God seems to choose to work through whoever he wants and doesn't seem to pay much attention to who I think he should work through and shouldn't work through. I find that incredibly frustrating. And throughout Judges, uh, we have met some incredibly broken leaders, haven't we? I mean, the, these aren't just leaders who have the odd blind spot or make a little mistake here or there. Uh, we have Samson sleeping with prostitutes and breaking these serious vows. We have Jephthah sacrificing his own daughter. We have Gideon seen a great victory and then making this ephod, this object that then it says all of Israel worshipped and his family, it was like a snare to his family. Just like truly big stuff happening with these leaders, really broken people and yet God still uses them. Maybe one of the gifts that this book of Judges that we've been walking through together, maybe one of the gifts that this book gives us it is that it messes with our, our categories of like, you know, maybe we're not so naive that we think we've watched too many Disney movies and everybody's either good or bad. Maybe we're not that bad. But, but we definitely, well, I, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here. Maybe you're all super holier than I am. But I definitely think in categories of people who I believe God should use and people who I believe God really shouldn't use and work through. And, and I think the book of Judges just messes with those categories for me. And I think that is maybe a gift. Um, so how do we, I, before we get on to kind of today's passage, I, I just want to reflect really on 
something that I feel God has been just kind of reminding me of, really, through this book of Judges and in uh, recent months. Like, how do we deal with this reality that from time to time, God's, God raises up people as leaders who are broken. Well, all the time he raises up leaders who are broken, but from time to time, they're really broken. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, is that, I think that's a thing, isn't it? We're all completely broken. But sometimes you look at some leaders and you think, really? Like, how is God working through them? And, and how do we deal with this today where broken people end up in leadership roles? I want to talk about two dangers that I think we have when we're thinking about leadership. And it involves a stool and um, a deck chair. Now, trustees, look away now. This is not risk assessed. But um, there is... <laughs> I know. These are very old, rickety stools. But it, it kind of helps with the illustration. Um, there is a danger, I would suggest, in elevating leadership and leaders to a pedestal, putting them on a pedestal. I believe there is a real risk involved in that. And it can happen in all kinds of different ways. We might just have a really high view of leadership and we kind of exalt leadership high and we forget that you know, Jesus or the New Testament talks about the fact that we, we don't need priests anymore. Jesus was our one and only priest and we're all now effectively priests. And we might think we still need that kind of go-between between us and God and we put leadership on a pedestal. Or it might be that we, we just kind of have too high an expectation of leaders and we think, well, they need to be kind of, you know, one rung below Jesus for somebody to be a leader. And, uh, and the, the problem with putting anything on a pedestal is that the higher you fall from, the more damage you cause, right? That, that just is a thing. So inevitably, when a leader falls because some, you know, there's some major thing in their life that they mess up with, or, or just we, we might have put them up on a pedestal and, and our illusion of them is shattered when we finally recognize that they really are not very perfect at all. Unfortunately, what can happen is when we've put them on a pedestal, when they fall, just it hurts more. There's more damage done, isn't there, when we elevate leadership to a place where I don't think it should be. Uh, in one high-profile situation in recent years, uh, where a, a high-profile church, a leader had had to resign because of some fairly major um, kind of accusations made against them, which by all intents seems to be a, a, a lot of truth to, um, the, the interim leader, I just kind of tuned in for a few Sundays just to kind of see how they were dealing with this, and the interim leader who came in uh, stood in front of this church who were very hurt. There was, you know, this was a massive deal. Founding church leader who'd been leading for a number of years. And this interim leader came in and he said, if your faith has been shaken by these recent events, then maybe your faith was in the wrong thing. And, uh, and I, I remember hearing that thinking, oh, like that was brave, <laughs> like really brave. But how true, you know, if, if essentially, you know, we sing the words that we might hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and, and righteousness. But sometimes do we, are we guilty of putting actually some of our hope and faith in leaders, in people, when really it should be in Jesus alone? And yes, this person, this leader had messed up in a, in a major way, absolutely. But there was no doubt that probably for some people, they had put too much faith in a person. And when this person came crashing down, maybe their faith in God was impacted by that. And, and it's not to say that that person wasn't wrong. You know, they were that leader, absolutely did mess up. But sometimes we can add to the problem by elevating leadership to a position 
where maybe it was never intended to be. Now, uh, on the opposite side of things, uh, in our avoidance to have too high a view of leaders, we can actually go the opposite direction, can't we? We can have too low a view of leaders. This one's probably going to be a bit more enjoyable to... Uh, <laughs> But, but sometimes we can just have too low a view of leadership, can't we? Sometimes we can think, well, maybe we don't need leaders. Jesus can be our leader, and we'll just kind of all get on. And, you know, we're a bit uncomfortable with the idea of authority. And I, I, honestly, I just feel like Jesus is building his church, and leadership is part of the design of the church that he has made, isn't it? Like, leadership is, we can't avoid the fact that Jesus uses broken leaders as part of his plan to build the church. And if we, if we have too low a view of it, I, I actually think it probably is akin to all of us just sitting around on deck chairs, having a great time. Like leadership brings something more uh, to the party in terms of church and what God wants to do through his church. And alongside that, we, we, we can't have, there is a danger, isn't there, in having too, too low expectations of leaders as well. So we shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and move on when your church leader starts sacrificing their children, think we'd agree, or, or sleeping with prostitutes, think we'd agree, or catching 300 foxes, tying their tails together and setting fire to the countryside. I would not expect anyone in any church to turn a blind eye to that kind of behavior. Now, maybe those things are, are the extreme, but at the same time, I think we should have reasonable expectations of leaders. Uh, we should have a church culture where we can challenge leaders, where we don't just turn a blind eye to the abuse of power or ma manipulating people or hurting people left, right, and center. We should be able to challenge these things appropriately. Now, I, I'm kind of talking here today about like the, you know, the dangers of the extremes of putting, having too high a view of leaders and leadership and too low a view and low expectations of leaders. I'm not sure what that middle path looks like, but uh, Deborah, who uh, was one of the judges that we looked at when Jenny spoke earlier on in this series, in her song that she writes, her first line is this. She says, Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. And I kind of think, well, that's a pretty good model, isn't it? When imperfect leaders lead well, servant-heartedly, with humility and love, and imperfect people gladly follow, praise the Lord. We're all broken. We're, none of us reached the bar of, you know, kind of perfection. And yet, we, we believe that there is a thing here, isn't there, around leaders and following uh, that is good. And when that happens, praise the Lord. So, uh, we are going to look at uh, Micah today, a character called Micah. And uh, I'm hoping that my son doesn't go to the toilet at any point in this talk and hear me talking about Micah in these terms and thinks we're talking about him, uh, given that my son's name is Micah. But we are looking at Judges chapter 17 um, and 18 today. And uh, we've, we've turned a bit of a corner here. So up to this point, we've had a bit of a bird's eye view of the big events in the nation, the leaders who God raised up from time to time uh, to lead his people. And, uh, and that's been great. Um, you know, some pretty messy stories that we've had. And there is more mess to come, including next week. Poor John has got the final. If you flick on to chapter 19, just you will feel for John and pray for him a lot this week as he tries to talk about that one. Uh, but chapter 17... Um, the, these last two stories that we've got this week and next week uh, really are, are just kind of snapshots of everyday life with, with everyday individuals within the nation of Israel. Um, 
this is kind of just examples. We, we don't have a timeline for these stories in terms of where they come in the story. They're just almost like a bit tacked onto the end of like, and here's what normal life seemed to look like. Um, so I'm going to read um, verse, uh, chapter 17, uh, and then I'll summarize chapter 18. So we start like this. There was a man named Micah. Uh, the name Micah means who is like God, uh, who lived in the hill country of Ephraim, One day he said to his mother, I heard you place a curse on the person who stole 1,100 pieces of silver from you. That's about 2.5 kilos, apparently. Well, I have the money. I was the one who took it. So Mike has stolen from his mother. He's heard his mother call down some curses on the person who stole it, and he's decided he doesn't want to be on the receiving end of those curses. Uh, Mother, I was the one who took it. His mum responds, the Lord bless you for admitting it, his mother replied. He returned the money to her and she said, I now dedicate these silver coins to the Lord in honour of my son. I will have an image carved and an idol cast. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) fab response, mother. Um, So, yeah, this is just how this story goes. Like, okay, we go, in, in response to this, in, in honor of God, in honor of my son, I dedicate these to the Lord. And how I'm going to do it, I'm going to break the second commandment that God gave his people in the Ten Commandments. Uh, so when he returned the money to his mother, she took 200 silver coins. Now, if you do maths, you might notice something here. How many were stolen in the first place? 1,100. And uh, what did she say? I dedicate these silver coins. How many has she now used for this project? 200, less than a sixth of the actual total. Anyway, she took 200 coins, gave them to a silversmith who made them into an image and an idol. These were placed in Micah's house. Next, another great move, Micah. Micah set up a shrine for the idol, and he made a sacred ephod. An ephod is like a special vest garment that were used by priests in their kind of ceremonial worship. Um, And uh, so he he made a sacred ephod and some household idols, so even more of these little idols that he's got. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. Um, His son was not of the tribe of Levi, so he shouldn't have been a priest anyway, but, and he shouldn't have had a personal priest. That wasn't a thing. But Micah, this is what he does, makes his son his priest. Uh, number six, here's a kind of summary of, of why we're in the, well, one of the reasons why. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. No kidding, author of the book of Judges. Uh, next, verse seven. One day, a young Levite who had been living in Bethlehem in Judah arrived in that area. He had left Bethlehem in search of another place to live, and as he traveled, he came to the hill country of Ephraim. He happened to stop at Micah's house as he was traveling through. Where are you from? Micah asked him. He replied, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am looking for a place to live. Micah spots an upgrade here from his son, who wasn't a Levite, uh, to this guy who was a Levite, so could be a priest, and he replied, uh, so he said, stay here with me, and you can be a father and priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, plus a change of clothes and your food. These are the perks and benefits of priesthood in Micah's house, change of clothes and food. The Levite agreed to this, and the young man became like one of Micah's sons. So Micah installed Levi, uh, the Levite as his personal priest, and he lived in Micah's house. And he said this, I know the Lord will bless me now, Micah said, because I have a Levite serving 
as my priest. What a mishmash of stuff we have here in this story. Uh, Chapter 18, I'm not going to read through in detail because uh, it's just a bit too long in terms of time this morning. Um, But essentially what you have then is the story kind of changes a little bit. We have uh, people from the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes who'd entered the land. And uh, these people, uh, the tribe of Dan, had failed to drive out the people who were in the land apportioned to them. And so they are wandering, looking for um, some kind of easier pickings, essentially. They send out some scouts uh, to find some suitable land. These scouts come across Micah's house on their way, and they stay the night with him. Uh, they, they come to Micah's priest, and they ask him to ask God if their journey will be successful or not. Uh, without any reference in the text to him actually inquiring of God, the priest turns immediately and says, go in peace, because God is with you. These scouts then head off to a local town. They like the look of it. There's plenty of wealth, fertile land, uh, and this, this town doesn't really have any allies within striking distance, so it seems quite vulnerable. They're pleased about this. They head back with the news uh, to their people, the rest of the tribe, and they rally 500, 600, sorry, 600 warriors to go back and take this city for themselves. On their way, they stop at Micah's house, and, uh, and this time they steal Micah's sacred objects, these objects that Micah has made, uh, these idols and this image of God, and they take it with them as a bit of a kind of good luck charm to, to hope that God will bless their endeavors. And uh, while they're at it, they suggest to the young priest, uh, why don't you come with us and be our priest? And he happily does. There's not much loyalty goes on in this story at all. Uh, And after that, they head off. Micah isn't particularly happy about this. And he and his pals chase after them shouting. When they catch them up, uh, essentially, the men uh, in this uh, band of 600 warriors uh, warn them that there are some hot-tempered men amongst their number. And, uh, And Micah meekly backs down. He doesn't even care that much about these things to put up a fight. And he meekly heads back home. The men of the tribe of Dan attack the city, and they take it for themselves with these idols. Now, the irony here in this part of the story is that technically they would have been allowed to destroy the city and to take it if there had been idol worship in that city. There is no record of idol worship in the narrative happening in that town. It's them, the tribe of Dan, who are carrying the idols. They're the one who are carrying idols, and yet they destroy a town where there doesn't, there's no mention of idol worship. And so they rebuild the town, they rename it, they appoint, appoint a priest for the town, and they set up this carved image of God in the middle of their town, town so that they continue, they can, all of them, when all the people come, continue their idol worship, which they do right up until... They're actually all taken off into exile many years later. So there's all kinds of things going on in this story today. Uh, But one of the biggest issues is this idea that Micah creates an idol, a depiction of God to worship God by. And in doing so, he is breaking the second of the Ten Commandments that God had given his people. In his attempts to worship God, he's breaking the laws of God in the very way that he's worshipping God. It's just this kind of what on earth is going on. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why why do we think God 
did forbid people from making a carved image of him. Have you ever thought about that question? Uh, Tim Keller's really helpful on this. He talks about how, essentially, if you were to create a, 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 if a human created an image of God, you will never fully capture or reflect in that created image the fullness and beauty of God's character. You, you might manage to kind of catch a glimmer in a, in a created or even just a drawing or a painting, a piece of art. You might catch a glimmer of one aspect of God's character, but by doing so, you conceal another aspect of God's character. So you take the golden calf, for example, that Aaron when Moses had gone up the mountain, Aaron, his brother, uh, gets loads of gold, makes a golden calf. Now, this might have demonstrated beauty and power, but a golden calf can't demonstrate God's love or his holiness. You know, if, if you were to try and paint a picture of God and you gave him a face, what expression would you have his face showing? Because God is all kinds of different emotions and feelings and expressions all at once, depend, you know, all at the same time. And you could never, ever capture the fullness of God. So whenever we create an image of God, we just automatically will distort our view of God because we can only capture glimmers and glimpses and parts and not the whole. And really, this is what is going on in this passage, really. It's what Micah's life demonstrates. It's a, a distorted, sorry, a distorted version of his view of God and his view of obedience to God. So he, he steals money from his mother, but he does confess it in the end when she calls down curses. He wants to worship God. He wants to please God and to seek God's blessing in his life. All good things, right? Nobody would criticize him for that, but he, in the way that he outworks that, he breaks the commandments that this God he's trying to worship has actually given to his people. It's a confused, messy version of faith in God. It's what I would describe as a pick-and-mix faith. He's kind of picking and choosing which bits of, of kind of God and faith in God and obedience to God he's using, but then kind of borrowing from other local religions as well and kind of hedging his bets. Um, now, wave at me. Anyone else love a bit of a pick-and-mix counter in the supermarket? Yeah, you get your cup, you can pick, you can choose whichever ones you find appealing in that moment. Uh, you can have as many cola bottles or fried eggs or strawberry laces as you like. But the problem with a pick-and-mix is if you take pick-and-mix as a whole and you dive your hand into your nice mix of sweets and you take a mouthful, licorice really doesn't go well with white chocolate mice does it? That is a horrible combination. And fudge and fizzy strawberries together are just best to be avoided. Pick and mix doesn't actually mix very well, does it? Have you ever thought it shouldn't be called pick and mix because it doesn't mix very well? Now, the author of Judges um, does just tell the story, doesn't actually, you know, kind of, they refrain from passing judgment on what Micah does. But it, you don't have to go very far in the Bible to read the rest of the Old Testament, the books of the prophets, the books of the law, to see how little time God has for this approach to faith in him, this pick and mix approach. So the question today might be, are we, might we in any way be guilty of a pick and mix approach to faith in God today? I believe that this can easily happen. I believe we all 
likely will face this temptation. It might be in response to various aspects of God's character that just kind of we think, oh, I'm not sure about that, God. It might be passages in the Bible that make us wince. If there, if there aren't passages in the Bible that make you wince, you've not read the whole Bible yet. Let me just say that. It might be that you, you just have life circumstances that are really hard. There's some really tough stuff that you are walking through. It might be unanswered prayer. You're praying and have been for years about this situation and it is not changing. Nothing seems to be changing. Or it might be just that our, our kind of feeling that what we hold to and what we believe today clashes with the culture around us and makes us deeply uncomfortable. I think all of these things can lead us to one of three responses that I want to talk about today. There's probably loads more, but the three I want to talk about, one of them is this pick-and-mix faith, and, uh, and I think this is what Micah did. And really what is happening here is, is this. We face the temptation to shape God into the God we want Him to be. Now, probably it is unlikely that any of you here have ever melted down a couple of kilograms of precious metal uh, like Micah's mother did and made an image, a carved image of God. And you probably haven't got a little shrine set up in your spare bedroom with your own personal priest. That's probably not how it's going to work for us today. It will probably be more subtle than that. It might be that when we're trying to understand how God feels about certain issues or we're trying to discern God, how, how should we live our lives in obedience to you, God? We might read a whole bunch of different viewpoints and interpretations of the Bible, but how do we decide where to land? We have a choice to make in that moment. Do we go for the view that we believe is most faithful to, to the Bible, or, or do we go for the one that's most palatable, or most convenient, or less inconvenient to us changing our lives. If I believe that if we take that latter approach, it's not hugely dissimilar to Micah's pick and mix faith, or his version of faith in God. So that's one of the approaches. One of the other approaches or temptations we might face is we just ignore it. We filter out the things about God that we can't accept. We might just kind of, oh, I'm not even going there. Like, you know, passages, some passages in the Old Testament, I'm just not even going to go anywhere near them. I'll just read the New Testament. We, we shrug our shoulders at the tough stuff and move on. This really, this approach is, around, is, is about ignoring parts of God's character. But we can, we can kind of dress it up, can't we, in our kind of, well, you know, we'll just keep Jesus the main focus. Let's just focus on Jesus. And yes, we should read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And Jesus shapes all of our faith and understanding of God. And he was and is the perfect revelation of the Father. And I would suggest is the starting point for us trying to know God is to look at Jesus, yes, but we can't allow that to, to kind of, we can't hide behind that and then not address some of the trickier things about God that we read. It's not just in the Old Testament. There are some bits of the New Testament that are pretty difficult to swallow as well. So uh, if a pick and mix faith in God is, is not the right way of dealing with our discomfort or filtering out isn't the right way, then what is the right way of responding to these things that make us uncomfortable or situations and circumstances in life that are just really, really hard. I want to suggest that the best response to this is that we wrestle with God. 
Here's the problem with shaping God into the God we want him to be. If we ignore parts of God's character that we just don't like, or we make him a more palatable version of himself, ultimately where we will end up is we won't ever have a God who can contradict us or challenge our deepest desires. We won't ever have a God who actually says no to us from time to time. And if we have a God who just approves of everything we do or doesn't challenge our thinking or our feelings, then we will never wrestle with him. Now, I don't have a lot of experience of wrestling. Um, I, I remember once at the age of 15 challenging my dad, we were at a day in the beach, uh, to a wrestling match on the beach. And, uh, and I thought, you know, big, big 15-year-old, I can finally take my dad. And uh, I was taller than him by this point, but the wiry old little farmer <laughs> beat me down into the, sound, the sand soundly. Um, so I don't know a lot about wrestling, and I've never tried it since, to be completely honest. Uh, but what I do know is that when we wrestle with someone, you have to get up close and personal. You can't have a wrestling match without getting physically proximate to someone. You have to get entangled with someone. Wrestling is actually, actually quite an intimate act when you think about it. You are very hands-on. And in embracing a God whose nature sometimes might make us wince or sometimes make us uncomfortable, we can learn to wrestle with him. And the result of that is we will end up in deeper intimacy with him, which ultimately is what he wants for us and ultimately is what we need in our lives, greater intimacy with him. In, a, in Genesis 32, we read a fascinating story of Jacob. He's on the run from his hairy and angry brother Esau. And, uh, and he's on the run and he wrestles with God. He gets intimate and physical in his wrestling with God. And he leaves with three things as a result of this wrestle with God. He leaves with a limp for life. The second thing he leaves with is God's blessing. And the third thing he leaves with uh, is a new name, Israel, which means he wrestles with God. Uh, Frederick Buchner describes this outcome where Jacob is forever changed after he wrestles with God. He describes it as the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Just love that as a description of what is happening. Maybe we're coming in to land with this. So musicians, why don't you come on up? Maybe God is inviting us today through these strange stories that we've been reading about of people thousands of years ago. Maybe he's inviting us to greater intimacy with him. Maybe he's inviting us to worship him for who he is, not as we want him to be. Maybe he's inviting us to worship him as his heart directs and not as our heart suggests. Maybe he's inviting us not to ignore parts of his character that we might find difficult to understand, but he's inviting us to wrestle with him about these things, about himself that he says who he is. And maybe in doing so, maybe we'll find greater intimacy with the God who made us and loved us. Maybe we'll find blessing from him in the process. But maybe a bit like Jacob after he wrestles with God, maybe we'll end up with a limp in our faith. Maybe we'll end up with the label of struggler 
added to our identity, which is what happened to Jacob. But maybe these things are all a good thing. Maybe it's no bad thing at all. If we end up as people who wrestle with God, we find blessing in that and we find intimacy in that. But maybe we'll be left with a limp. And maybe that limp will cause us to lean on God all the more and be all the less self-reliant. Maybe that's what God wants. You know, sometimes I often think about this, that God, God kind of gives us enough to have faith in him, doesn't he? He gives us enough revelation, enough of a view of himself so that we can put our faith in him. But he never gives us so much that it's easy, (laughs) does he? He never gives us so much that it's just obvious and everyone's like, yeah, of course God exists and Jesus died to save us. He never makes it that easy. Have you ever wondered why that is? I genuinely think it's because ultimately what God wants is relationship. It's what he wants us to seek him, to come to him, to search him out, to to wrestle with him, to say, God, I'm going to pursue you. I've I've got enough of a glimpse here to work with, but that's that's all we need to kind of give us a taste of, yeah, I want more God, and we then have to pursue him for more. I I believe that's who God is, and that's how he made faith in him. He, He didn't make it easy, because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, and we wouldn't need to pursue him, would we? But he makes it easy enough, but not too easy. And so we are people who pursue him. And maybe we'll walk away from pursuing and wrestling him, weak, limping, but leaning on him. Uh, why don't we stand? And uh, we're going to respond by worshipping God and, uh, and declaring some truths about God, about who he says he is. Uh, but I'm just going to pray very quickly. Father God, we just acknowledge that some of these stories are strange. <laughs> what a mess. But then we look at our own lives and we recognize the kind of pull of, of different desires and hopes within us. And God, we want to be people who say, okay, God, we want to know you more. We want to be deeper in relationship with you. We don't want to try and shape you into a nicer version of more palatable gods. We don't want to ignore parts of who you are. God, we want to we look to you and say, God, you get to say who you are, but we, we want to know you. We want to understand you. Yes, you may remain a mystery in many ways forever, but we want to pursue you. And in doing so, we believe we will be drawn into deeper relationship with you. So God, we come to you now. God, I, I want to acknowledge that there are tough stuff in life. There are difficult things that challenge us in your word. There are circumstances in life that we wish were different and we're praying to you and we're saying, God, we want you to change those things. But God, while we wait on you, while we acknowledge the mystery around those things, we don't want to allow that to turn into distance between us and you. We want to allow these things to draw us deeper into our walk, our relationship with you. So God, would you have your way in us? You are you know, in, in Revelation, it talks about you standing at the door and knocking. You are doing that with every single one of us. You are saying, can I come in to the very depths of your life? Can I come and commune and fellowship and eat with you? Can I be part of your life, please? <laughs> and we want to be people who say yes, who open the door to you and say, God, come on in, meet with us. We want a relationship with you. We need you.
So would you do that in our lives, God? Amen.